This morning we find ourselves once again in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 13. We have been learning much about what it means to walk with Christ, what it means to be a part of His kingdom. And again, as we go verse by verse through this wonderful gospel, we find ourselves again looking into some of the parables of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we find ourselves this morning in verses 44 through 46. So if you will, follow along as I read Matthew 13, 44 through 46. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Here again, we see Jesus continuing to speak to the multitudes in parables, explaining them, however, only to his disciples, those who had ears to hear, those who had truly placed their faith in him and therefore he was concealing divine truth from those whose hearts were hard as an act of judgment, as well as an act of mercy, in that he was protecting them from greater condemnation by depriving them of the opportunity of rejecting even more truth. So here in Matthew 13, we see him continuing to use a series of parables illustrating subjective, abstract, spiritual truth by comparing them to objective, concrete stories that were easily understood, familiar stories. And thus far, he has used a number of familiar figures that we would even understand in our culture. He's talked about soil and a sower and seed, birds, thorns, Rocks, sun, wheat, tares, mustard seed, and leaven. And now today, he will use the figure of a hidden treasure as well as a priceless pearl, all in an effort to reveal spiritual truth. And certainly that is my passion for you this morning, that you will glean what the Lord has for us in these three short verses and two little parables. But sadly, for most people in Jesus' day, these magnificent truths were nothing more than mysterious riddles. They had no way of understanding them because they had already hardened their hearts. They had no ability to grasp them. The truths were incapable of penetrating hearts and minds that had been deceived by religious lies and had been blinded by their radical commitment, frankly, to self-determination, as well as the satisfaction of their own lusts. You know, this is a common phenomenon that we see even today in our culture. People who are carried away, as James would say, and enticed by their lusts. People that are driven by their lusts, their passions, the passions of the flesh. 
And here's kind of how it worked back then, as well as it does today. People end up having some kind of a personal agenda. They are motivated primarily by the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. And so what do they do? Well, they create for themselves their own little world, one in which they can be in control, one in which they can be their own Lord and master. And as a result, they develop an unrealistic worldview. They are hopelessly biased in their own favor with the perceptions that they develop. But they feel comfortable in the little bubble they have created and any concept, any spiritual truth, any kind of feedback for that matter that challenges them, no matter how compelling, anything that challenges their contrived system is instantly disregarded if it is even understood. And this was the dynamic that Jesus faced with the multitudes. You see, friends, if I can put it this way, sin is like a a serpent that stands guard at the entryway of the human heart, ever vigilant to immediately spit venom at divine truth should it dare enter. In fact, apart from divine intervention, which theologically we know, biblically we know, is something called regeneration. Apart from regeneration, the invading truth of the gospel would never be able to enter a man's heart. Sin would kill it every time. And how thankful we should be, those of us who know Christ, that by His grace and His mercy, He quickened us, He regenerated us, He helped us to see the truth. And therefore, we accepted His gift of faith. Otherwise, that serpent of sin would still be on guard and in charge. So the vast multitudes of Jesus' hearers, both then and now, remain incarcerated, frankly, in a a prison of their own making, a prison of self-deception, a prison where they had come up with their own worldview, a prison where they understood how to function in their world, and frankly, it was a world in which they didn't need God. At least not the God that Jesus was describing, namely even himself. So they believed they had found life in their religious system. And as a consequence of their calloused unbelief, Jesus now conceals further truth from them by speaking to them in parables, giving those with ears to hear amazing insight into the kingdom of God. But for those who had calloused hearts, he didn't explain it. They didn't understand it. And they walked away confused. Now, thus far, we have seen some of these parables. We learned a few weeks ago about the four hearts of evangelism with the parable of the sower and the soil and the seed. We've seen his parables that speak to the issue of of encouraging his disciples both then and now with respect to the to the power and the, the influence of the kingdom of God, the promises of the kingdom of God. We've learned about the destiny of unbelievers, the blessings and the maturity for believers. And today we have now a couplet, in other words, two parables that come together in the fifth and sixth parables out of eight parables found in Matthew 13. And these parables, dear friends, will now help us understand the whole issue of the kingdom and how to enter it. First of all, let's understand the situations 
that the parables are describing. And then after we understand this, we'll better be able to determine and understand what they mean. First of all, in verse 44, you have this parable of a hidden treasure. Again, the text says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, this was a common practice back in those ancient days. They would hide their valuables in the ground. They did not have bank vaults in which to hide their precious money and jewels and and so on. So uh, they had secret hiding places where they would put their their jewels or, or heirlooms, gold, silver, jewelry, even clothing. Sometimes they would even hide food because there were always armies coming in and and attacking you and. And their houses were very easily accessible. So you certainly wouldn't want to hide anything in your house because people could break in very easily. So they would hide things and they would typically hide them at night and retrieve them at night. So no one would see their secret hiding spot. And frankly, the land of that day was strewn with buried treasure, great and small. If you were to go over there in that day with a metal detector, you could become rich overnight because there were things buried in many, many different places. So the Lord uses a parable that they would understand. A man accidentally happens upon a hidden treasure in someone's field. Now, it's important for you to understand that this treasure that the man finds doesn't belong to the current owner. Otherwise, uh, the, the owner would have retrieved it before he sold the field. And it was also common in that day for owners to bury things and then they would die. They didn't live very long. And many times they would be carried away by plundering soldiers and they would be carried away into captivity and so on. And so it would not at all be unlikely for someone to stumble upon a treasure as this man did. And even in that day, rabbinic law allowed a person to claim such a treasure if they were to just happen upon it assuming that the original owner was unknown. So that's what happens. And obviously, the one who found the treasure was not a thief or he would have taken the treasure without offering to pay for the field with all that he owned. So he finds the treasure. He has great joy and he goes and sells everything to buy the field so that he can possess the treasure. Now, the second parable is a similar scenario. The pearl of great value Notice in verses 45 and 6, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all, sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the Lord is using a familiar figure that everyone would have understood in those days. Merchants would travel all over the region to purchase a variety of goods, they would do like many of our merchants would do. They would buy things wholesale, mark up the price and sell them at retail. They were familiar with that. But pearls were very, very scarce in the ancient world. And they were considered to be the most highly treasured of all of the gems. Because divers who would dive down to get the oyster, to get the pearl, many times would risk their lives. Many of them died in that pursuit, and often they would destroy their health in the diving. And so these pearls were very, very valuable, and obviously they're very beautiful. And also, since they were quite small, they made great investments. 
because they were small as well as valuable. So you, as opposed to gold, where you would have something very heavy and very large to be worth a lot of money, you could have just a few small pearls and have quite a fortune. So they were easy to hide, easy to store. In fact, the wealthy Jewish and Gentile women of that day adorned themselves with pearls. They would put jewelry in their hair with many pearls. They would have them on necklaces, bracelets, earrings, rings, and so on. History tells us that one person that we are all familiar with a bit, Cleopatra, possessed many pearls, two of which were especially large and beautiful, and they were worth in that day what would be compared to several million dollars in today's market. So again, the parable is simply this. A person is searching for, for merchandise, finds this, this, this great prize in this pearl, and like the man that finds the treasure in the field, he sells everything so he can possess the pearl. Now, what was Jesus teaching with these two parables? That is the question. What is he teaching about the kingdom? Well, I believe there are five lessons that we can learn as we look at these parables this morning. And the first lesson is simply this. The kingdom may be discovered in different ways. The kingdom may be discovered in different ways. One man found the treasure by accident. The other man was seeking it. I know most all of your testimonies here at Calvary Bible Church, and I know that some of you came to a saving knowledge of Christ in a similar fashion as perhaps the Samaritan woman who met Jesus accidentally at the well. Going about your life, you would tell the story that you had no thought for God, no thought for Christ. Maybe even you were resentful of who he really was. And one day, in the mighty providence of God, you meet a total stranger. You weren't planning on it. It just happened. And that individual introduces you to Christ. A number of you have stories like that. Others, I know, one in particular, my oldest son was a young man getting ready for school one day. And he hears John MacArthur on the radio. And I'm sure he did not wake up that morning saying, you know, today I really want to enter the kingdom. I really want to understand the gospel of Christ. But as he's getting ready for school, he hears the gospel and uh, the pastor on the radio says some things from the scripture that the spirit of God uses to pierce his little heart. And he talks to me. And by the time we get to the parking lot, uh, he is under profound conviction. And I had the privilege of leading my son to a saving knowledge of Christ. Others found Christ in maybe some unexpected tragedy in life or some unexplained God ordained, God orchestrated event that grabbed your attention Kind of your version of the of Saul, who saw the Lord and the glorious Shekinah on the road to Damascus. But for many people, you didn't wake up and say, you know, I'm going to find the kingdom today. But you did. I think of John Bunyan, that great Puritan pastor and theologian. The author of many books, but certainly the best known is Pilgrim's Progress, the number two bestseller in the history of the world next to the Bible. He acknowledges that it was in the providence of God that one day he accidentally overheard three women in Bedford, England, discussing the truths of God's word. And the Holy Spirit used those truths to, over time, convict him and bring him to repentance and faith in Christ. 
Charles Spurgeon, likewise. A young man, when he was growing up in, his, in, in a Christian home, uh, he did not know Christ as Savior, but knew, not, knew, knew much about the Christian religion, like many people. And he was quite comfortable, the story goes, with his religion. Life was normal for him. He was a typical teenager, typical English boy, enjoying life with no thought of seeking the treasure of the kingdom, much less stumbling across it. And there's a fascinating story that he tells, and it goes something like this. He was 15 years old. It was a New Year's morning there in England, and he decided to walk to church, as he had done many times before. But the wind was cold that day and blowing snow, and it was so cold that it forced him to find shelter in a small storefront. So he entered that storefront in a frenzy to find warmth and relief, and to his surprise, he had entered a little church. Well, little did he know that God's hand of providence had now placed him in a field where he was about to find a priceless treasure. Spurgeon writes about this incident, saying, and I quote, When I could go no further, I turned down a court and came to a little primitive Methodist church. The preacher who was to have conducted the service never got there because he was held up by the weather. And quickly, one of the officers had to be brought forward to conduct the service with the congregation of perhaps 15 people. The man was really stupid. His text was, quote, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. And he just kept repeating it because he had nothing else to say. Obviously, this preacher had saw young Spurgeon and he goes on and to, to tell us what uh, he said to him. Young man, you look very miserable and miserable in life and miserable in death. You will be if you don't obey my text. I have to laugh. It reminds me of our little storefront when we first started right down the road here. And we know that in a small congregation, there's no place to hide. And so this young man was was spotlight right there. Well, Spurgeon goes on to describe what happened next. The preacher shouted to him, young man, look to Jesus. Look, look, look. He says, I looked and then and there. The cloud was gone and the darkness rolled away. And at that moment, I saw the sun. What an amazing story. And there are many stories like that where the Spirit of God draws people to a saving knowledge of Christ without them even anticipating that it was going to happen. Well, others discover the kingdom in a different way. Others discover it after a long search. Like the merchant whose eyes were, were, were always peeled for a priceless find like the pearl. Some folks, some of you even, have spent many years or had spent many years searching for the meaning of life, pursuing one lust after another, one chasing after one pleasure after another, studying foolish things like psychology and various forms of philosophy and maybe even dabbling some of you in the occult. Others decide to pursue various religious systems, some of them even cults. And you go to one spiritual guru after another. You serve in one church after another. You're never satisfied. And then suddenly, one day, the Holy Spirit caused your eyes 
to land upon the priceless, inestimable treasure of the gospel of grace. And suddenly you discover the king in his kingdom in all of its glory and you're overwhelmed by the love of God and you're you're humbled by his grace and his mercy. And suddenly at that moment, you surrender all that you have to possess what he freely gives. Martin Luther was such a man. Martin Luther's search led him to a monastery where he grappled in vain to find transforming truth in the vast deceptions of Roman Catholicism. And one day in the study room, his study room in the Wittenberg monastery, the Holy Spirit penetrated his heart and enlightened him. And suddenly he understood for the first time Romans 117. This gospel of grace where we read for in it, referring to the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. But the righteous man shall live by faith. And at that moment, he became a new creature in Christ. His search was over. He had found the pearl. And so began the great reformation that organized many millions of genuine believers to rise up against the great Roman harlot. Well, not only can the kingdom be discovered in different ways, but these parables teach us something else. Secondly, the kingdom will not be valued the same by everyone. You see, think of this. Had the owner of the buried treasure valued it in the same way as the one who discovered it, he would have never left it unguarded in the ground. Likewise, had the original owner of the pearl truly known its worth, he would have never sold it at any price. But, dear friends, the one who truly sees the kingdom of God, who knows the seriousness and understands the consequences of sin, that one will immediately appraise the value of the kingdom and grasp it without hesitation. This morning, as I do every morning driving to church. I find myself always looking at the gas station over here, the little quick mark where all of the people seem to gather to get ready for their Sunday. And, you know, those people really sadden my heart because as they're there, they're planning on going fishing. They're planning on going on picnics. They're planning to go watch a football game downtown or they're getting a video to watch through the day or some of them today were getting on their Harleys to go for a ride and so on with no thought whatsoever of their eternal destiny, of the destiny of their soul. No understanding, no comprehension that they need the kingdom. No comprehension that the sword of divine justice looms over their head. No value of the gospel of Christ, meaningless to them, and certainly no thought that right down the road, just a little ways, is a little church, a little church called Calvary Bible Church and others in the area. And in that church lies the treasure that's beyond all treasures, the glorious treasure of the kingdom of God. Dear friends, like a drink of water is to a man dying of thirst. The kingdom of God is only precious to one who is, is desperate to be delivered from the kingdom of darkness. And most people don't have that kind of desperation. 
You see, forgiveness of sin has infinite value to those who know they stand condemned before a holy God. But most people don't think that. Most people never give that any thought. But those who are quite content with their own goodness will see the cross. Therefore, the cross of Christ is a meaningless act and his saving grace will be rejected like a worthless stone. It has no value. But not so for the discoverer and the merchant and the parables who immediately recognize the infinite worth of the treasure. And this brings us to the third lesson that we can learn from these parables. And that is this. The kingdom is worth all that you have. In both parables, notice that they are willing to sell all that they had in order to possess the, the, the kingdom. And the point is simply this. Dear friends, there is absolutely nothing on earth that compares to the surpassing value of being a citizen of the kingdom of God. Nothing compares to that. To have the promise of heaven. Nothing compares to that. You know, it's fascinating to observe man's insatiable appetite for earthly treasures. Think about it. Think of the power of the lottery which, as I call it, is attacks on the poor and the naive and the ignorant, tapping into their idolatrous worship of materialism. Think of people that pursue all of the get-rich-quick schemes. And you see them all the time on television, don't you? Advertising, you know, call this number, or you get them on the email. You know, call this number, and, you know, we learned, or we earned $10,000 a month beginning two weeks ago, and all those types of things. Think of the treasure hunters that comb the seas, risking their life to bring up little golden trinkets. People spending great amount of money to dig for oil and to dig for diamonds and precious gems. And I think of the California gold rush back in the 1800s where people were pursuing the American dream and thousands died as they battled the elements as well as each other to find that precious yellow mineral. Many stories where some regions, in some regions of the California gold rush, the, the, the miners were so desperate for water that they would pay up to $100 per glass of water. Can you imagine that? People consumed with things that are ultimately meaningless. I was reading not too long ago about the gold rush in the Klondike, having been in the Yukon and hunted there and knowing that area. I was curious about it. That gold rush happened later on, by the way, in the around 1897, and it's said that about 100,000 people stampeded off to the Yukon. Only 30,000 of them ever completed the trip. The, the terrain there is so rugged and the weather is so brutal. Most of them died in the quest just to get there. But then many more died after they were there. They were so disappointed because once they reached Dawson City, the locals had already claimed most of the the gold-bearing creeks, and there was very little gold to begin with. In fact, the, the claims, gold for the taking, were greatly exaggerated. And what they, these people had to do is dig through 10 feet of what's called permafrost. It's permanently frozen ground. You see, the gold isn't out on the surface. You've got to dig through 10 feet of permafrost. But before you did that, you had to thaw the ground, otherwise you couldn't dig through it. And they could only dig in the summer they would have to fight swarms of flies and mosquitoes. You couldn't dig in the winter because it would get down to 60, sometimes as much as 100 below zero Fahrenheit. 
And it's interesting, the only ones who really profited were the merchants who took advantage of those blinded by their love of money. Dear friends, I really believe that there is perhaps no greater proof of the depravity of man than his blind determination to gain that which is eternally worthless. Unregenerate man is utterly driven by his lusts. The things of God are foolishness to him. So he could stumble across across the treasure of the kingdom and just kick it aside. He could see the pearl of great price and move it aside and prefer a candy bar in its stead. But Jesus said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Dear friends, the point is simply this. There is nothing that even remotely compares to the kingdom. Nothing. Nothing in your life. Because in Christ, we have, according to Ephesians 1.17, redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to, now catch this, the riches of His grace. Think of that. This is a staggering truth. The riches of His grace You see, the value of the treasure of God's grace that we see in the kingdom can only be measured by the price that was that was paid to procure it, namely the blood of Christ. And to think that God finds greater joy and forgiveness than we do in having been forgiven. That's an inconceivable thought to me. Moreover, think of this. Our pardon is not limited by some unseen boundary of sin. That if you sin this much, then his grace won't cover that. No, not at all. There is no limit to the grace of God. There is no deficiency in the blood of Christ. As one 18th century poet put it, there's pardon for transgressions past. It matters not how black they're cast. And oh, my soul, with wonder view for sins to come, there's pardon too. Oh, dear friend, can't you see the kingdom is worth all that you have? Now, I hope you understand this parable is not indicating that somehow you can purchase your salvation. No, not at all. Again, we receive forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace. Grace being that 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 mystery of an infinite reservoir where we find undeserved blessing that's freely bestowed upon all who will believe a free gift. But what the Lord is saying is that there is a price for the kingdom in the sense that it will cost you all that you have, meaning total surrender. That's the idea. Total surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. Now, as I was thinking about this, I thought, you know, what a wonderful thought. That's a price everyone could afford. No one would be able to see that fabulous pearl as a merchant and say, I'd love to have that, but I can't afford it. No, we can all afford it. And the price is simply all that you are, all that you have. You see, your standing in life makes no difference. Think of this. There are no conditions to entering the kingdom apart from humble repentance and a pleading for divine mercy, regardless of how poor you are. Regardless of how sinful you are, how insignificant you are in this world, you can afford the kingdom. All you do is give the king your life. And this, the the price is simply a total surrender to his will. And if I could put it differently, this is genuine confession 
It is genuine repentance of sin. And as a result of that, we are given the gift of faith. And what you will begin to see then is a love for his word, a zeal for his service, a hungering and a thirsting for righteousness, a longing to spend time in his presence in prayer, a passion to glorify him in all that you do. As Paul would say in, in Romans 12 too, it's the idea of presenting your body a living and a holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service. And with such an attitude of humble worship, dear friends, the kingdom is yours. Where we receive the forgiveness of sins, where in the kingdom we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Now think, where else can you purchase something like this? Where suddenly you're made a partaker of the divine nature of Christ. Where suddenly you have the hope of living eternally in the presence of God. Where immediately you are given this wonderful gift of the spirit that lives within you. That will give you supernatural peace in the midst of great turmoil. Where you're going to have joy in the midst of great persecution and suffering. Where you're going to be given suddenly divine insight into the glorious truths of the Word of God with which you can begin to understand yourself, your family, and the world in which you live. But those without Christ will never have any of that. And can I ask you, if you're here without Christ, what on earth could possibly compete with the treasure that I just described? What on earth is possibly worth more than that? And for those of you that love Christ, Paul reminds all of the saints in Ephesians 1, beginning the last part of verse 18. He says, he prays that all of the saints will know what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. Dear friend, think of this. Think of the infinite value of his grace. And, you know, the infinite value of his grace is even better understood when we compare it against what we deserve. When we compare what we have received through grace versus what we deserve. Think of this. Because of the freeness of the divine favor of his grace, we have all been snatched from the fiery pit of hell. We have been plucked, as it were, as brands from the burning We've been delivered by his great mercy and by his grace from eternal judgment in that place where there is eternal weeping and gnashing of teeth. So think not only what we have received, but think from what we have been delivered from. What on earth can possibly compare to that? And I shudder to think of the destiny of my soul were it not for grace. I trust this helps us all to understand what the Apostle Paul was saying. When he rejoiced over the riches of his grace, Charles Spurgeon said it in a way that grabbed my heart. And I quote, if you read the role of the covenant, referring to the covenant of grace from beginning to end, containing as it does election, redemption, calling, justification, pardon, adoption, heaven, immortality. If you read all this, you will say this is the riches of grace. God, great and infinite who is a God like unto thee for the riches of thy love? Friends, let me ask you this. Think of it this way. What would you give to have peace in the midst of suffering? What would you give to have 
an unshakable joy in the middle of heartache? What would you give to have strength in weakness, to be able to have crystal clear insight into the realities of this world that come from God himself? What would you give to have assurance of salvation, to have the hope of heaven, to have the eternal promises of living in the glorious presence of God, to have the anticipation of eternal joy, not to mention to be saved from eternal condemnation? What would you give for that? Well, these parables answer that question. The price is simply total surrender of all that you are. And all that you have. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And Jesus also said that he who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. And you know, when we do surrender all, as many of us have, by God's grace, we never have a thought of, oh my, what have I done? All of the things that I now must give up for Christ. Oh, how I miss what I have abandoned for Christ. But rather, dear friends, the contrary is quite true. What we think with all of our hearts is simply this. Oh, what unfulfilling folly I pursued all of those days. What undeserved blessing I now have because of Christ. Now, because of Him, I hate the things that I used to love and I love the things that I used to hate. In fact, I hate what He hates and love what He loves. Indeed, the old things have passed away and the new things have come. And then we can echo what the Apostle Paul said. You remember in Philippians 3 when he recounted all of his personal achievements that would be so impressive to the world and he said of them, but whatever things were gained to me, I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So we learn from these parables, first of all, that the kingdom may be discovered in different ways, that we that, that not everyone will value the kingdom in the same way and that its worth is that all that we have. But fourthly, we see that the kingdom, dear friends, requires a personal acquisition. You see, neither the treasure nor the pearl were given to the finder, right? They weren't given to the finder. Neither the treasure nor the pearl were inherited. You see, in both cases, the finder had to personally acquire them by selling all that they had. With respect to the kingdom of Christ, if I can put it very practically for you, Salvation is not acquired unwittingly when a priest sprinkles water on a baby. The kingdom of God is not obtained automatically when one joins some church or some denomination. The kingdom is not procured by inheritance where one naturally receives the, the kingdom promises by birth or citizenship or even race. You see, the treasure, dear friends, the treasure requires a personal acquisition where one personally sacrifices all that they have to obtain the kingdom. 
Now, this was a radical departure for the Jews of that day that were listening to Jesus. You see, they assumed that since they were the children of Abraham, since they were part of the, the covenant people, they were automatically kingdom citizens. End of discussion. And sadly, many of them believe that even to this day. But you will remember that even under the old covenant, not all Jews were considered to be part of spiritual Israel. In fact, Paul reminded his Jewish brethren of this very truth in Romans 9, beginning verse 6. He says, they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. Likewise, dear friends, many religious people in our day, perhaps some of you in this church or within the sound of my voice, may wrongly assume that just because your parents were Christians or just because you grew up in some church or just because you've been a part of some denomination for generations, that because of these things, you're part of the kingdom. But nothing can be further from the truth. You see, everyone must individually, personally enter through the narrow gate of the kingdom on their own. As we've studied before, you must squeeze through the entrance with the great effort of brokenness of sin and surrender all that you have to serve the Savior and King. You see, repentance of sin in and of itself is a transaction between you and God. Now, please hear this. You alone will someday stand before God in judgment. You will not stand Within the company of a group, you alone must receive Christ as Savior. You alone must surrender all. No one else can do that for you. And so as we look at these parables, again, we see that the kingdom can be discovered in different ways. That not everyone values the kingdom in the same way. That the kingdom costs you all that you have, and it also requires a personal acquisition. But finally... As a result of this glorious transaction, number five, the kingdom, and I love this one, will evoke eternal joy. Notice that the man who found the treasure in the field was so overjoyed that he sold all he had to buy the field. And the same response is implied when the merchant found the priceless pearl. There was no sense of, oh, fiddlesticks, I guess I've got to take the pearl. Oh, fooey, I've got to be a part of the kingdom here. Not at all. You know, it's sad to see so much sadness in the world, isn't it? Especially when joy is such a legitimate need in every human being. But what people fail to realize is that true, lasting joy that will not ebb and flow with circumstances, is available only to those who are united to Christ in faith and are walking obediently with Him. Instead, what people do is say, well, you know, I've, I, I've heard that religious stuff. I don't want anything to do with it. Where I find real joy is in, and then here you go with the whole list. And you've got all of those things, entertainment, purchasing more possessions. That's why I think the new worship centers of today are called malls. That's where people to go to find something to anesthetize the pain of a life that's going nowhere. Or they find uh, fulfillment somehow in drugs and alcohol or, or sexual immorality or gambling or hobbies or, or some other situation. Some people find great joy in just feeling sorry for themselves. 
and criticizing others or abusing people and on and on the list can go. But dear friends, again, there is absolutely no real life apart from Christ. All life is apart from Christ is survival until judgment. That's all it is. And you know what is really sad, if I can digress for a moment, it's sad to see sad Christians. Now, you figure that one out. People that have the kingdom and they're still sad. How can that be? Well, the answer is simply they're out of fellowship with Christ. They're not walking obediently with him. You say, boy, that that seems unfair. Well, now hang on. First of all, let me say you show me a sad Christian. And in most cases, I'll show you an immature Christian. After exhorting his disciples to be obedient in their living, Jesus said in John 15, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. Very simple. Years of counseling have revealed a number of things to me. If I can put it this way, and this is a little silly, but it it makes sense, and I think you'll remember it. Sad leads to mad. And mad leads to bad. That's kind of how it works. You know the type. Maybe you've seen them even around the church. I see them. I won't point out who you might be. But I see it from time to time. Moody people. You can tell they're sad about 50 yards away. They walk into their church, into the church and they're practically stepping on their lower lip. You know, they're all hunchbacked and they're sniveling and whining and they hardly speak. And everybody feels this pull. Please feel sorry for me. You feel manipulated. And oh boy, if you try to say anything, you get this response of leave me alone. Can't you see I'm sad? And you think, what what is this all about? We have the kingdom. Why would we be sad? And you watch people moping around like an old sore tail cat. I want to do what I would do at home. I want to get a broom after them sometimes, you know. And I I, I want to say, you know, dear friend, you need to grow up in the Lord. You need to get your thumb out of your mouth. You belong to the kingdom. You know, deal with your life before the Lord. You know, in Galatians 5, one of the fruits of the Spirit is joy. And you know the rest of them. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. By the way, the grammar is very, very fascinating. God, we pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.